Hi everyone and welcome to Heroes and Howlers and the Rest is History. I'm Mikey Robbins. I'm a bit of a history nerd, but my mate Paul Wilson. Hi, everybody. Paul's a proper historian, all the way from Oxford. Thanks, Mikey. Okay, folks, so here's the show. It's about the unsung heroes, the bizarre twists of fate, those weird bits of history that have surreptitiously changed the course of mankind. Yeah, actually, mate, it's also about the cock ups. (laughs) Those howlers, the moments of madness, they're sometimes tragic, sometimes comical, that have made the world what it is today. Hi, folks, and most of our regular listeners will know that, that Paul likes to take us all over the globe. But but today, Paul, you're going to leave the globe and we're going into space. That's right, Mikey. I thought, yeah, we've done Antarctic, we've done the Arctic. I thought it's only fair that we went to the final frontier, into space. And I suppose before we start, we'd probably best get some of that technical <laughs> jargon cleared up. So I've looked through some of the science manuals, if you like, and I think I've got my head around them. Okay, Paulie, hit me with the technical terms. Right, so we'll start off with the troposphere, which apparently is the first sort of 5 to 20 kilometres above sea level. You're talking your Mount Everest, your jumbo jets. You then got your stratosphere, over 50k with the weather balloons. The mesosphere, that's 85 kilometres above ground level. That's where the meteors usually break up and you get your burning shooting stars. And then there's a key one, 100 kilometres, Mikey. That's the Kármán line. That's a sort of imaginary line they draw in the sky where the northern lights and all the aurora would form. Then you've got the thermosphere, 700k. That's where most of the orbital flights actually take place. Yeah, your satellites, that kind of thing. And then finally, 10,000k and above, you've got the exosphere, the real space. But to give you an idea, Mikey, that's still quite close to Earth because the moon is actually 380 thousand kilometers from earth okay paulie so the exosphere is where we want to be today because let's face it you can't talk exosphere without talking rockets that's right and that's what we want to talk about today isn't it we're talking space we're talking rockets and i suppose a lot of our ideas about this first started with those great works of fiction you know stuff like jules verne hg wells and even your man serrano de bergerac from the old dog tanyan episode Actually, Paul, one of the most famous literary mentions of, of real rockets comes from well, the, the American national anthem, the Star Spangled Banner, mm. which is based on Francis Scott Key's poem, The Defence of Fort McHenry. Mm. Now, that describes the bombardment with ship-launched rockets at Fort McHenry by the British Navy during the War of 1812. You know, the famous lines, and the rocket's red glare, the bombs bursting in the air, gave proof through the night that our flag was still there. Yeah, and that's quite interesting, isn't it, Mike? Because as you say, that's... The 1812 war, not the American Revolution, which a lot of people think it's from. Yes, mate, but let's face it. If we're talking rockets, I I want to go back to 400 BCE. Okay. There was a Greek inventor who amazed the good folk of Tarentum, a town in southern Italy, Mm -hmm. with a tethered wooden pigeon that flew in circles. It was supposedly propelled by a jet of steam coming out of its backside. (laughs) Right, and then in the first century AD, of course, you've got the Chinese, haven't you? They're starting to mix saltpeter, sulphur, charcoal to create gunpowder, and it's not long after that you get the records of them experimenting on the best methods to use that gunpowder to create projectiles. Although we probably have to wait for about a thousand years in medieval times until we actually get some solid 
evidence in the literary sources, but in 1232 we do have an account at the Battle of Kaifeng where the Chinese repel the Mongols and it describes these arrows of flying fire. Which also puts play to the old Western myth that the Chinese only ever use gunpowder for decorative fireworks. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Although, of course, yeah, these flying arrows of fire, they probably made more of a psychological impact on the Mongols than actually being physically destructive. But nevertheless, the Chinese did win the day. And in fact, the Mongols immediately began developing their own rocket technology in retaliation. That's sort of like the world's first arms race. Yeah, and it's probably a good thing that they did because it was actually the Mongols, not the Chinese, who first spread rocket technology westwards into Europe. So that by the early Middle Ages, they're actually being described in various different contemporary accounts. You know, we've got this description from the Arab scholar Ibn al-Bata. He calls the gunpowder the snow from China and then in 1242 we've got the English Franciscan monk Roger Bacon who better known as Dr Mirabilis and in his book Epistola he actually weighs up the use of gunpowder for missiles for explosives as a weapon of war. Which leads us to just after your guy Roger Bacon in 1258 rockets are mentioned in the Chronicle of Cologne and then in 1379 the Italian historian Muratori he described how central rockets were in achieving victory at the Battle for the Island of Chiosa, mm. which is part of that conflict between Genoa and Venice that went on for years. Yes. Well, according to him, a rocket set fire to a previously impenetrable section of the fortress, although it must be said that this victory was more good luck than planning. I mean, I mean these rockets were virtually impossible to aim. Mm. But it is the first use of the word, the Italian word, rocchetta, which would later be translated into English as rocket. Hi everyone and welcome back. Today we're talking space, we're talking space exploration and we're talking rockets. And as we get to approaching the 20th century, I mean, two countries immediately come to mind. That's right, Mikey. I suppose the first has got to be Germany, hasn't it? Yeah, with the V2, which they used to such devastating effect in World War II. And also their little Messerschmitt 163 Comet. Yeah, that strange bulbous little rocket type plane that, yeah, it wasn't quite as effective as the V2, but it did give us the first manned flight at over 1,000 kilometres per hour. And of course, the other country is Russia. And when I think Russia and rockets, probably one of the most terrifying images of World War II is probably the Katyusha rocket launch. We've all seen images of them, those long tubes and its terrifying launching noise. It was actually nicknamed Stalin's organ. <laughs> yeah, not a great nickname. And interestingly, Mikey, Russia actually has a pretty long history in rockets, doesn't it? The first recorded rocket-type missile to be used by the Russians is actually in fighting around the Ukrainian city of Belgorod in 1516. And by 1680, there's actually an official rocket enterprise organisation founded in Moscow to look into military applications for rockets. You know, Peter the Great, he funds more experiments. And by 1732, the Russian border fort of Brest actually boasts 20 rocket launching devices as part of its defences. And then, of course, you know, in the 19th century, you've got those two incredibly influential Russian artillery engineers, Alexander Zajidako and Konstantin Konstantinov. But, but the 19th century rocket pioneer I want to talk about was not a member of the Russian military. He was a medical student and a revolutionary. Nikolai Kabalchik. Okay. Okay, he's born in 1853 and he was the son of a Russian Orthodox priest, but he was already spotted as a bright lad. Mm. He spent some time in the seminary and he actually finished high school with a medal. He was also an engineering enthusiast. 
1871, he entered the St. Petersburg Institute of Railway Engineers. Mm. But two years later, he switches to the St. Petersburg Emperor Military Medical Academy. Mm. But in his spare time, he works on experiments in rocket propulsion. Okay. Then in 1875, his life changes. He's charged with... I can't believe this. Lending a prohibited book to a peasant. No way. He spends three years in remand before receiving a two-month sentence, which is ridiculous. Look, if he wasn't a radical before his arrest, his time in jail certainly radicalised him. On his release in 1878, he joins a group that will soon become known as Noronya Volya, the People's Will. Right. It's one of those classic 19th century, it's a group of young revolutionary, mostly socialist intellectuals, but they'd embrace the efficacy of assassination and terrorism. Ah. Now, with his background, and particularly his work with rockets, he soon becomes their explosives expert. Mm. It was his job to design and oversee the construction of explosives that would be used to assassinate Tsar Alexander II on March the 1st, 1881. Right. But he wasn't there on the day. There were actually three other young men from the people's will. The first one threw his device at the Tsar's carriage. Now, here's the thing. That carriage mm. was actually a gift from Napoleon III <laughs> right. and was bulletproof. Ooh. If only Alexander had stayed in the carriage, but he got out to inspect the damage, <laughs> and that's where the second assassin <laughs> threw the fatal device. Oh. And there was another young revolutionary, he was just waiting nearby, with another one of Kabalchik's bombs hidden in his briefcase. Now, the three assassins are all arrested, and they break under torture. And on March the 17th, Kabalchik was arrested. Ah. Now, here's the thing. The freshly arrested Kabalchik completely surprises his defence counsel with his behaviour. It seemed that his impending doom was the last thing on his mind. Right. One of them would later tell a special committee, I was surprised above all by the fact that his mind was occupied with completely different things, with bearing on the present trial. Mm. He seemed to be immersed into research into some sort of aeronautical missile. He thirsted for a possibility to write down his mathematical calculations involved in this discovery. Uh. In fact, in the 17 days that led up to his execution, he described and sketched out a manned flight vehicle propelled by a solid fuel engine. He drew designs for a rocket engine attached via a gimbal-like device. Okay, you know, science is my strong point, but bear with me. A gimbal-like device was attached to a platform. Mm. This would allow rudimentary steering okay. by, by adjusting the direction of the thrust of the engine. Mm. Two days before his execution, he made an official request to the Minister of Interior Affairs for an interview to explain his new invention. Of course, it, it fell on deaf ears. Okay. In fact, due to Archibaldic's notoriety, it was decided that, and I'm going to quote here, to give this, his writings and drawings, to scientists for examination would hardly be timely and may invoke inappropriate comments. And as such, his work could have been consigned to the vaults and and would have been lost forever, except two things happened. Mm. The Bolshevik uprising of 1917. Sure. And the work of, a, of another rocket enthusiast, a young guy called Nikolai Reinen. Mm. Now, Reinen, he'd heard rumours of the executed rocket pioneer. In 1918, he searched the archives and he actually published Kabalchik's work proposing man rocket flight in his magazine, De Boilov, The Past. Ah. But here's the thing, mate. He could have been forgotten, but as you might expect in Soviet-era Russia, a martyred revolutionary who'd assassinated a czar, who was also a rocket science pioneer, was just too much of a propaganda home run. (laughs) Kabalchik goes from being written out of history to his work being portrayed as being a major influence on Sergei Korolev, the man regarded as the founder of the Soviet space program. Mm. That theory's actually since been debunked, but 
Kabalchik does get the ultimate honour. He's got a crater named after him on the moon. All right, so that's Russia. But as we said, there is another big name player in this game, and that's Germany. And it, too, can trace its pedigree right back into the annals. Yeah, right, mate. Look, in 1509, the German military engineer, a guy called Konrad Kaiser, he publishes a book called Bellafortis, in which he, he describes three different types of rockets. One free-flying, like you'd expect. Another, which is apparently designed to skim along the surface of the water. And a third one, which was guided by a string to reach its target. Mm. A sort of string-based guided missile. Right. And then we've got the world's first large-scale experimental rocket program, haven't we? We've got the Opel RAK, or the Opel Rack, under the leadership of the famous Fritz von Opel and Max Vallier during the 1920s. And that's the program that actually leads to the first crewed rocket cars and pilots in rocket planes, which, of course, paves the way for the Nazi-era V2 program that we talked about before. In fact, this whole program, with its series of spectacular public demonstrations of ground and air vehicles drawing massive crowds... It actually leads to such an outbreak of global public excitement, the whole merry-go-round becomes known as the Rocket Rumble. But there is another guy I want to mention here, Mikey, and that's a guy called Hermann Oberth. Now, he's actually Romanian by birth, but by nationality he's German. And from a young age, you know, he's been reading books like Jules Verne's From the Earth to the Moon, and they've inspired him to study the rudimentary requirements for any potential interplanetary travel, so much so that in 1922, for his doctoral dissertation, he actually writes about rocket-powered flights, <laughs> although his thesis is actually rejected by the University of Heidelberg for being too speculative. But that doesn't put him off, and those ideas become the basis for his classic book, the 1923 Dirac Zuden Planeta The Rocket into Interplanetary Space, and this work is where he explains the mathematical theory of rocketry and he applies that theory to rocket design and discusses the possibility of constructing not just rockets but space stations and travel to neighbouring planets. In fact, in 1929, Oberth follows that up with his second influential book, The Ways to Space Flight, and the publication of these two works leads to the formation of a number of rocket clubs across the length and breadth of Germany, as enthusiasts try to turn Oberth's ideas into practical devices. And the most important of these groups for our story, Mikey, is the Verein für Raumschifffahrt, the VFR, the Society for Spaceship Travel, because one of its young members was none other than Werner von Braun. I was wondering when we were going to get to him. Okay, so up until now, it has been space exploration that's been driving the members of these German VFRs to build their rockets. But of course, as we said, in the early 1930s, their work does come to the attention of the German military. And in 1932, Werner von Braun, now 20, he gets talent spotted and made chief engineer of a rocket development team for the German army. And then when Hitler comes to power in 1933... Braun's actually named the civilian head of the team under the military command of Walter Robert Dornberger. And the German military, you know, to give Braun's engineers the space and the secrecy they need for their work, they actually erect a development and test centre at Peenemünde on the coast of the Baltic Sea. And that's where they develop, amongst other devices, the V-2 ballistic missile, which is first launched successfully in 1942, and then which of course were used to such devastating effects against Britain towards the end of the war. 
I think both of us here want to point out too that this centre, Pinamunda, it was built by slave labour. Not just POWs, but conscripts from the concentration camps, and it was built at an appalling cost of human life. Now, at the end of the war, and it probably won't come as a surprise to hear this, von Braun and his team surrendered, and they were taken over to the American lines. But the interesting thing is, they were then immediately shipped out to the United States, where they were asked to work on the American rocket development program, Operation Paperclip, which I always think is quite a nice title. It's not a great title, no. And key to the last part of this story, they also brought with them their engineering plans and the actual pieces of material and parts that might be needed to construct new V2-type missiles. Let's not forget, mate, Stalin was also interested in the German technology behind these ballistic missiles. Mm. So with Germany on the point of surrender, he sent a team in under his star engineer, Koryolov, we talked about him earlier, Mm. and a number of German engineers were relocated to the Soviet (laughs) Union. Right. But here's the thing, unlike von Braun in the States, they were not impressed with what they saw, and they quietly snuck back into Germany in the early 50s. Okay, so up until now, we've been talking about the small steps of rocket evolution, but now it's time for the giant leap into putting humans into orbit. It's spaceflight post-World War II. Now, once again, there are two countries involved, but Germany's gone. It's down to the heavy hitters of the Cold War, the USA versus Russia. So over in the States, as we said, thanks to von Braun, they've got the lowdown for the technology behind the V-2 missiles. And although that was originally built and designed as a weapon of war, it also serves as a very useful prototype for many of the rockets in the US's early space program. So between 1946 and 1951, the US Army conducts its test firings at White Sands in New Mexico. And these sounding rocket flights, they actually reach altitudes of 100 to 200 kilometres above sea level, i.e. above that key Kármán line that we were talking about at the beginning. And this is where we get the next gear change, if you like, because now the army invite American scientists interested in high altitude research to put their experiments aboard these newly reconfigured V2 type missiles and analyse the data. So you get what becomes known as the Upper Atmosphere Research Panel, which is chaired by the physicist James Van Allen. And that's formed to coordinate the scientific use of these rocket launchings, with the panel focusing on experiments on solar and stellar ultraviolet radiation, the aurora, and the nature of the upper atmosphere itself. Now, of course, by this stage, yeah, the supply of V2s they've got from Germany is almost running out, but they're replaced by new US-built sounding rockets such as the WAC Corporal, the Aero B, and the Viking, so that by 1949, we've got the bumper whack reaching an altitude of 393 kilometres and becoming the first human-made object to officially enter space. Well, <laughs> that's according to NASA because not everybody agrees. Speaking of which, let's go back to Russia. Now, they're being led by that guy I mentioned earlier, Sergei Koryalov. And under him, the first successful orbital launch was that of the Soviet uncrewed Sputnik 1. Satellite One. Mm. And that was on um, October the 4th, 1957. Right. Now, this this satellite weighed about 83 kilos. Hang on, that's no bigger than me. It's a bit smaller than me. <laughs> anyway, it was launched on the back of an R7 rocket, and it's believed to have orbited the Earth at a height of around about 250 kilometres. Mm. Here's the thing. It had two radio transmitters, one in 20 and one in 40 megahertz. Now, these emitted beeps that, that can actually be heard by radios all around the globe. Mm. Now, analysis of the radio signals was used to gather information about the electron density of the ionosphere, Mm -hmm. while temperature and pressure data was encoded in the duration of the radio beeps. Mm. 
Now, the fear was that anything set up as a satellite was was bound to be hit by some meteoroid or, or some other thing. But success of this mission proved that this wasn't the case, although it did burn up on re-entry on January the 3rd, 1958. But, but from here on in, things come pretty thick and fast for the Russians. And here's one thing that often gets overlooked. In 1959, mm-hmm. the first artificial object to reach another celestial body mm-hmm. was the Russian Lunar 2, which landed on the moon right. in 59. And then, of course, in April the 12th, 1961, the first successful human spaceflight was conducted on board Vostok 1, East 1. Mm. It carried the famous 27-year-old Russian cosmonaut, Yuri Gagarin. Yeah. And the spacecraft actually completed one orbit around the globe. It lasted about an hour and 48 minutes. And poorly, as they say, the rest is history. Okay, folks, so there you go. Although I do have a couple of nice stories just to close out our space mission. The first one goes back to that guy, Von Braun, because as we said, he moves over to America and he actually acquires American citizenship. And it's him who leads the team that develops and launches the Explorer 1, the first American satellite. And then in 1958, when NASA is created, he's also the man who leads the team at NASA's Marshall Space Flight Center, which develops the Saturn V moon rocket. But this is the bit where I really like this story, Mikey, because remember Hermann Oberth, you know, the early German experimental astrophysicist we mentioned right at the beginning. In 1969, he actually got to see his ideas become reality because he's the man that von Braun invites to be his own personal guest on July 16, 1969, to witness the launch of the Apollo 11 moon landing mission. All right, folks, so there you go. Any questions, any comments, just drop us a line on all your social media, same as usual, your Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, whichever you prefer. That's right, and always the same handle, at the rest is hist. The rest is hist. And you'll find all that in the show notes. And whenever you're listening, don't forget to like, subscribe, comment on whichever platform you happen to use. It's always great to get your feedback. Yeah, keep it all coming. We're having lots of fun out there. Lots of extra stories. And maps. There's always more maps. (laughs) Right. (laughs) 